Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind the scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Okay, welcome back to another clinical uh, challenges cases with the uh, Behind the Knife team. Uh, we're going uh, old school today. We have two of the original members. I'm here with Scott Russell Steele. Uh, I'm Jason Bingham. Scott, it's uh, good to talk to you, buddy. How you doing? Doing great, Jay. Good to have you back home. Oh, thanks a lot. Uh, well, if it's okay with you, I think we'll just uh, dispense with the uh, pleasantries. I think people know who you are. Uh, they don't care who I am. So uh, if it's okay <laughs> with you, let's go ahead and get into the case. Knock it out. Okay, Scott, so our patient is an 80-year-old female with three days of nausea, distension, and abdominal pain. Her last bowel movement was four days ago, and she reports increasing problems with constipation over the past year. She reports that she is not passing flatus. No significant past medical or surgical history. On exam, her abdomen is distended and tympanic, but uh, is otherwise soft and non-peritoneal. You note that she's got a microcytic anemia on her laboratory workup with a normal white blood cell count and otherwise uh, unremarkable. Uh, the ER went ahead and got an x-ray, which shows a distended right and transverse colon uh, with up to 10 centimeters at its uh, greatest point of distension with uh, no gas or distal in the distal colon or rectum. You do not see any small bowel or gastric distension. So just hearing that, uh, what's, you know, what's going through your mind? What do you think? Yeah, so that's great. So, you know, a lot of times what I try to tell people is the first thing that comes to their mind that we pretty much always do is, do I have time or is this an absolute emergency? Obviously, if it's an absolute emergency and I got to go to the operating room, that, that you're kind of diagnosing and working up all at the same time. But in this particular case, you, you take a look at the patient and some of the things that stuck out on examination uh, is the fact that she doesn't have peritonitis, peritonitis so that's a, that's a big deal. Uh, obviously, as we talk a little bit more about, you know, what's her vital signs and to be able to go into that, you know, she's got a normal x-ray, but you, you always think about her age. And, you know, obviously on this clinical challenge, we're thinking to ourselves, you know, I can't really see her, but is, is she thin and frail and has a giant belly? Is she morbidly obese? How much can I trust my exam? What's her mental status like? All of these other things come into play. But in terms of a differential diagnosis, for sure, you got to first be thinking about in any 80-year-old person that... Why is she not passing any platelets? Is this true obstipation or is it really somebody that's just not passing a whole lot of anything? But she's passing a little bit if you dig into the history a little bit further. So a 10 centimeter transverse and right colon, uh, you know, a lot of people may think that 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 by definition is something that is getting us into that, uh, that mega colon type area and a paucity of gas in the distal colon rectum. So I have something that's going on that's blocking that colon or preventing gas from getting on, whether it's functional or something anatomical. So Differential diagnosis for me, I think about neoplastic first and foremost. Am I dealing with, you know, a malignancy? Am I dealing with, you know, and then you can go into all the different types of malignancy, anywhere from adenocarcinoma to, a, you know, a very giant polyp, I guess, to all of the different ones that go. We think about inflammatory in terms of strictures, and that stricture could be ischemic in nature. We go into a cardiac a little bit. Has she had prior diverticular disease? Does she have underlying inflammatory bowel disease? Is this a volvulus patient? Obviously, when we talk about uh, the volvulus and what shows up, you know, I would assume that I would see a little bit more on the plain film, but uh, pseudo obstruction is this somebody that, you know, has now had narcotics for whatever reason, has electrolyte abnormalities, or there's somebody that's had recent uh, type of surgery you think about in it, uh, you know, intussusception, infectious is always out there, although that's typically predominantly uh, diarrhea, but you definitely can get 
even some pretty severe diarrheal illnesses that may have preceded this, that now it kind of all that has passed and now you're actually not passing from blow. So, you know, boom, do I get an emergency or not? What's my differential diagnosis? Dig in the history a little bit more than go from there. So let's, uh, that's a fantastic, you know, discussion of the, of a broad differential. Is there anything like in this patient, you know, if you're that you would want to do at bedside, um, you know, that, that we didn't mention, uh, uh, like a rectal exam or anything that you would do before moving on to any further imaging? Yeah. You're asking a colorectal surgeon, obviously I would do a rectal exam <laughs> in this patient. Cause a lot of times, again, know your finger, know your finger size, minus seven centimeters. And I'm sure, you know, Jason, you're probably about 10. So the reality <laughs> is you can get a fair amount of, you know, low left-sided tumors that can present exactly like this with a rectal examination, see if it is. And of course we should say she could easily have something along the lines of fecal impaction. And, and, you, and you miss the obvious and say to yourself, wow, you know, we're getting all worked up for all these things or a foreign body. You never know exactly what you're going to find. And so a rectal exam is great. You're going to rely on your abdominal exam, looking for peritonitis, looking for these other ones. But that, that's the heart of what we're really doing. Great. And for the listeners, of course, you know, if, if, if you're in this, um, well, in real life or especially in a world board scenario, you know, you want to be sure that you dive a little bit more into that history and, and find out that colonoscopy history and all those things that we didn't mention. But, but that, that's fantastic. Just one real quick thing before we move on. You mentioned something about a volvulus and, and maybe you would see something a little bit you, you would have been clued in on your, your plain film. What are those uh, findings on plain film for a volvulus that you're looking for? So in this particular case, you know, you're seeing a positive left-sided gas. So you're thinking about a sigmoid volvulus. And so, you know, you can see that where is it pointing? Is it pointing in the right upper quadrant? Is it pointing in the left upper quadrant? Can you see the, you know, the, the classic coffee bean or kidney bean sign? Are you seeing a bird's beak that everything tapers down into? Uh, it's very difficult, Jay. Uh, you know, I know we're kind of going through these scenarios, but the reality situation is most of these patients are already having a CAT scan that's done, whether or not it has contrast. And so on CT scan, you'll see things like the world sign as you'll start to see kind of the turning of the mesentery. So you're following those um, those uh, blood vessels as they go up into the bowel. And then certainly uh, with any of these things, uh, we're going to be able to look and say, do I have free air? Do I have, you know, not only a paucity of gas and fluid, but if start to take a look and see, is there a mass of what's the surrounding tissue? Is there pneumatosis? Is there a bunch of free fluid? All of those things can point you into a certain direction. Great. Well, and that leads right into the next step is, you know, what do you want to do next with this patient? You mentioned a CT scan. So let's say, you know, in, we're in a bizarre world and the, the patient doesn't already have a CT scan. What's your preference for, for, for imaging? Um, and how, what are you going to tell the ER doctor to order? Yeah. So a lot of times the patients, especially if they're having truly very distended and they may even have an NG tube in place already by the time you see them, it could be very difficult to get a, uh, a CT scan with any sort of contrast. You know, in most places, it's going to be hard to give somebody rectal contrast, especially with this. It would be nice to have a little bit of rectal contrast to see kind of, are you looking at a mass? Are you looking at the apple core lesion? Are you at, looking at that bird's beak that's associated with the volvulus? And, you know, what are the secondary signs? So a uh, CT scan, depending on whether or not she has underlying renal insufficiency or whether or not she's hydrated enough uh, with a little bit of IV contrast, or, uh, that, that goes a long way. You know, I think that for some reason, a lot of people think that they can't see what you need to see with just um, uh, with the absence of oral contrast. And that's not the case. You know, a lot of times with these fine cut films here, you know, you're going to be able to see what you want to see. Is there a mass? Is there fluid? Is there free air? What's is there thickening or pneumatosis of the bowel? 
And it'll go a long ways towards you kind of getting a quick upfront answer to make a determination of kind of narrowing that differential diagnosis and see where you're going. Great. Yeah. I would 100% back that, you know, I, I agree with that. I think that, uh, you know, you, you, you look at a lot of the the, the recommendations and, and, of course, everybody's going to say we would love to have oral contrast. But, you know, I think the radiology literature is certainly supporting with, you know, the the the, the high fidelity of the newer CT scanners. You can really get a lot of information. And, um, you know, the oral contrast, certainly it, it's great to have if, if you're in that kind of subacute presentation and, and they can tolerate it. But a lot of times you're not going to have that. And that's that's really OK. You also mentioned something about decompression from, you know, the NG tube. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, you know, the importance of, of, of uh, you know, we're thinking obviously a large bowel obstruction. We don't know exactly what yet, but we're thinking large bowel obstruction. Um, what role the ileocecal valve and, you know, things backing up and how to kind of tease that out and, and, and what's the significance of that? Yeah, whether or not you have a plain fill in your CAT scan, what, you know, you're talking about if you have somebody that's got a truly competent ileocecal valve and they have a left-sided uh, colonic lesion that's obstructing or a pseudo obstruction or any one of the things that we talked about in our differential diagnosis, the colon could get massive. And um, in the small bowel will be relatively decompressed. And the issue with that in many cases is that the right colon, which is obviously thinner walled and has more capacitance to distend, uh, you got to worry about that site perforating. As a matter of fact, you can come to the point where, again, playing this out and depending on the scenario, you could have two sites of perforation, a perforation from a tumor or something like that on the left mm -hmm. side. And then just from the obstruction itself, getting another perforation on the right side, which may mandate that you undergo a total abdominal colectomy. Again, jumping ahead of ourselves way. Yeah. But uh, if you don't have an, a competent ileus, or if you have an incompetent ileocecal valve, then you're more apt to see somebody who has pretty massive small bowel uh, um, dilation as well and fluid-filled small bowel uh, loops. The issue that that goes to is that we, the, the role of the NG tube and how good it is for an isolated colonic you know, uh, dilation, probably not that good. In many cases, it may take a little bit nausea away, but, you know, you're still going to get that massive colonic dilation that's going to cause uh, the patient to feel distended versus somebody who's got the incompetent valve and a small bowel dilation. That's where the, uh, that's where the NG tube intubation might be a little bit more effective at relieving some of the, uh, the symptoms that the patient may be feeling. So it alleviates their symptoms, but in your mind, does that affect the urgency of, of dealing with that obstruction in a large bowel? You know, it, it probably doesn't because you probably don't get as much decompression of the colon as you need to. The reality situation is, is if I'm dealing with a 10, 13, 15 centimeter uh, colon, um, you know, outside of the fact that this has been going a long time and you don't have massive small bowel dilatation or gastric, uh, a large amount of fluid within the, uh, within the stomach, you know, sticking an NG tube town isn't going to do much. And you got to be able to take a look and say, what am I dealing with? Do I got to decompress and blow? Do I do a colonoscopy or do I have to take this patient to the operating room? Okay, great. So now we got, we got that out of the way. We got the CT scan. Um, pertinent findings, both positive and negative. I mean, this 80-year-old female with anemic, uh, you know, anemia, uh, you know, we're thinking, you know, cancer until ruled out or until uh, proven otherwise. But, uh, you know, f what are you looking for specifically for an obstructing mass on the CT scan? Um, that's going to... So I, yeah, I think the most important thing that you can think about it, especially if I'm uh, rolling through my mind that this is a malignancy is, am I dealing with something that's colonic? 
or am I dealing with something that's rectal? That that's really you know if you don't if you kind of you know you can get lost in the weeds. But the reason that that makes a difference is think about the way that we deal with colon cancers versus rectal cancers. On a colon cancer, this is that's a surgical operation, and then you talk about you know you know in very very rare cases are you going to need to have uh, you know neoadjuvant or adjuvant radiation therapy. Often cases you might have to have uh, adjuvant. Um, chemotherapy versus rectal, that's where the role of the chemo radiation therapy comes in, especially in the neoadjuvant setting. And now more and more these days you get uh, chemo radiation therapy followed by consolidation chemotherapy or, or chemotherapy followed by um, the uh, chemo radiation therapy. So either in the induction or the consolidation form. So that rectal role in being able to get good, you know, staging, good margins, shrinkage, all those other things come into play with the rectum. And so the reason that that makes a difference with regards to this clinical scenario is if it's rectal, you may be much more apt to say, all I got to do is get out of the urgent setting. And that is going to need a diversion because once you take that patient uh, out of that urgent setting and divert them, then you can get the MRI to work up. You can get the distance scans, you get the CEA, you get all those other things. And they may have locally advanced rectal cancer. And then because they're diverted, you can give them chemo radiation therapy and treat them just like you would maybe something that's not, you know, presenting this acutely. Colon cancer, on the other hand, if it's, you know, up in the sigma colon or transverse colon, in this case, it's obviously a little bit more left-sided because you have dilation in the transverse colon. But that's something that is oftentimes needs to go to surgery. And, you know, outside of really and a locally advanced lesion that's invading to the root of the mesentery or, you know, down by the, the tip of the pancreas or the, the LOT or a lot of those other ones, you know, you wouldn't say that uh, diversion plays as big of a role in the urgent setting. Certainly there are skill sets that are out there that, you know, that you may find yourself in that you may not feel comfortable in that setting and to divert them and get them to somewhere that deals with this much more. That's always a safe answer. Uh, you're not really harming anything you're getting them out of uh out of uh you know out of the emergent situation but the reality is is that distinguishing between rectal and colonic is big in this case perfect well let's first deal with uh, let's let's stay in the, the the colon realm and we'll, we'll we'll touch on some of these other things as we get into it but let's just say that you know this 80 year old female um has uh, a high-grade obstruction at the descending <laughs> colon um What's, uh, you know, what are your priorities that are there? How do you, how do you, uh, your prioritize how you're going to manage this patient? What are your next steps? Yeah. So obviously you want to resuscitate the patient, making sure that they're ready to go to the operating room. And that's something that we didn't talk about, but it's at the heart of everything we do. You know, we want to communicate with anesthesia. We want to make sure we have appropriate lines and monitoring and get a Foley catheter in them, make sure we correct any electrolytes that are there, your type and cross ready to go to the operating room. The second thing is you need to make a surgical judgment about how you're going to approach it. Is this somebody going to stick a scope in or somebody that you're going to take to the operating room? Before you get there, you want to start thinking about even in an urgent or semi-urgent setting is how can I mark this patient for a stoma? Remember, if you look out there, somebody's got a large bowel obstruction, especially an 80-year-old, may have a high chance that where you give them this stoma is something that they are going to have to live for the rest of their lives. They may never get it taken down. So you don't want it in cricks or folds or anything that's going to cause them to be very difficulty with pouching and just be a miserable existence afterwards. So take the time to look at their body habits, look for any areas of which you can mark them ahead of time. And even if you can sit them up, and look, because remember, creases change when they're lying flat in the bed or when they're sitting up. Never forget that. In a quick 30 seconds while you're waiting around to go to the operating room is worth its weight in gold. Um, obviously, kind of one of the problems with large 
obstructions are, depending on the body habitus, that you may have a loss of domain, that the colon is so dilated that you really, on a minimally invasive approach, can't see well. You may start to consider things like hand assist, if, even if you don't do it. And how friable is that colon? Either in, in the, you know, if you have somebody, for example, that has an acute setting of a toxic megacolon, the colon may be like tissue paper, and it may not be super easy to be able to deal with. And, you know, and how quickly can you manage to get this patient off if they're really urgently sick versus an open or a laparoscopic case? There's a lot of data out there, Jay, that would suggest that a minimally invasive procedure, even in the acute setting, the outcomes are are better. But it, it, we always, we talk about papers, but we don't talk about what is your individual expertise. And that, that's something we all have to ask ourselves in this situation. In terms of resection, again, we go back to what does the colon look like? Is it so distended that it's actually borderline ischemic? Do you have a perforation on the right side of the colon? You're going to have to do a subtotal colectomy. Is this something that's just very isolated? You, Everybody will read about on-table lavage, and you might read about the fact that should I put them together and do a diverting uh, loop ileostomy? All of these things come into consideration, but a lot of it depends on what does the patient look like? How are they doing in terms of hemodynamics? Is What is the bowel status like? There's a couple of tips and tricks that you can do early in the operating room to try to decompress it. But oftentimes that looks really good in a book chapter or something, such as you'll see cute things like take off the appendix and put a chest tube in, try to decompress that liquidy stool. In reality, that might be a messy mess that you have stool all over the place and you'd be just well enough served by dividing the bowel, allowing it to decompress and pulling up your ostomy and getting out of dodge. So you have to be able to take a look. Other things that we talk about in terms of the stent of resection, you know, if it is a malignancy, you want to do a good cancer operation. And, you know, then you got to start to think to yourself, you know, do I feel comfortable getting to the root of the mesentery, identifying the, the IMA and a left-sided lesion? How can I go in and understand that the IMV is just lateral to the ligament trites and I may have to divide it way up high up there to allow length for either my reconnection and anastomosis, or even in some cases, to even get enough length to bring up your colostomy? All of these things uh, are critically important. The other aspect that is out there is um, that before you jump to the operating room, many of you may say out there, wait, he didn't talk about doing a stent. Well, a stent is you know, up to the individual provider. Do you have the skill set or do you have the skill set in your hospital to be able to stent? The issue of stenting is a little complex. And the complexity to it lies of the technical success in many cases are greater than 90%. You got to view it in terms of a bridge in order to be able to go to surgery and have a, um, uh, have, a, um, have a successful operation down the road after you've decompressed that area. There is some concerning um, data that's out there that suggests that the oncological outcome associated with the stenting is worse than that if you do a primary resection. And I guess the thought process is, is that you can have, you know, potentially have tumor shedding or tumor seeding or even perforation with a stent or stent migration or clogging in the stent. So those are the different aspects that you need to be able to think of. Um, the other aspect that you probably should know is that, you know, in these cases, especially when you have massive blockage and have a stool all throughout the colon, you know, you don't get really that opportunity to, uh, you know, to get a colonoscopy to see if there's other lesions that left behind. And you can have anywhere between 6 and 15% a rate of synchronous lesions. So if you're unable to do that at a time, that's probably not the time you're going to want to do an on-table lavage and on-table scope, especially if they're not doing well. But just keep that in mind. And it goes to the fact of what you brought up earlier, Jason, to see if you can dig around in the history a little bit or dig around in the electronic medical record and look and see if they've had a recent colonoscopy. And many times they won't. If you do have, uh, take them to the operating room, one of the things you don't want to miss out on is take a look around. 
Look for metastatic disease. See if you see it. Are you dealing with carcinomatosis? Remember, upwards of 25% of patients may present with stage four disease at their initial presentation. This can include the liver, it can include the lungs, but it can also include carcinomatosis. And so you want to biopsy what is out there and make sure you document appropriately about the extent of the disease. Um, Those are the major things that come at those points. Uh, If you have somebody that has got really bad disease and carcinomatosis all over the map, then you start to say to yourself, how can I bail? What can I do? And the basics of what you're talking about there is saying, what does the bowel look like? Do I have a competent ileocecal valve? And how do I get out of Dodge? Remember that bringing up ostomies, you might have to bring up two ostomies. If the colon is massively dilated, you need to bring up an ileostomy as well, a mucus fistula. These are all things that you may not have done a ton of, but you got to really assess the bowel and take a look and see what am I dealing with. And at the end of the day, I said this a little bit earlier, but you know, if if in your skill set on these complex patients, if it is really, you know, if you're like, God, I just haven't done a whole lot of this, and the the, the bowel is very edematous. The, the, they got a thick and fat and mesentery and you may not be able to do a good cancer operation to divert that patient to get them to somebody who else who does that's 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 doing the smart thing it's not you know it's not kind of um, bailing out on yourself excellent that's i mean there's there's a lot there there's a lot to kind of unpack just want to kind of revisit a few things so um you know for we have, we have an obstructing colon cancer so open for our first laparoscopy you say that if it's within your skill set laparoscopy is certainly acceptable and has a uh, good outcomes um, it, you know, a lot of times you're dealing with a very big descended bowel. I mean, you, 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 you mentioned a few kind of techniques there. You said most of them are a disaster. Do you have any tips or tricks or, I mean, if you have to do it, what's your method of doing it? Yeah, I think it's, what's always interesting to me is that most of what you're dealing with is just air and liquidy stool. So making sure that if, you know, once you get your point above where you're going to divide the bowel in that particular case, you know, if you're going to divide the bowel and make sure that you can drain it even a little bit, you'll see that colon decompress a fair amount very quickly. You want to be able to prepare for that by laying towels down, getting a bucket in so that liquidy stool is going to go out and you don't spill stool all over the abdomen and convert it into a, you know, a gross wound in terms of our wound class, that dirty wound that you're dealing with. Um, some people do like to make a small colotomy, put in a purse string, especially if you got a really liquidy stool in air, and then put that uh, pull tip sucker in to kind of decompress it. Uh, if that is your case, obviously you want to make sure that you're away from the tumor. Um, and you're also within the boundary lines. It'd be helpful if what you're going to resect. So that, that is key. Uh, I said before that some people like an apodectomy, if they're going to do an apodectomy, put a, uh, uh, put a uh, chest tube in. I've even uh, so I know about things, and many of you may have seen some things where you do that right up front. That's one of the first things you do, so you get the opportunity for the colon to decompress, so it's time to put it back together. I didn't make mention this because, again, this is there's a lot to unpack here with a lot of little substances, and we're talking at mostly a 15,000-foot view level right here. It's important for the listeners to understand that, but you know, the idea of can I put it back together? Can I safely put that bowel back together and do a diverting loop ostomy, or does this mandate or warrant me to have a colostomy? Um, the data out there would suggest that you can put it together, but recognize that what you're having to deal with at the time of the operation is what are those two ends of the bowel look like? Yep. Is one of them massively dilated and thin and you got a really bad size mismatch and there's still kind of stool everywhere. You know, there's a lot of variations on this practice and that's what you as a surgeon have to use good surgical judgment and say, you know, this is what I got to do. It doesn't necessarily fit a cookbook. Great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, uh, talking about, 
just to you know, kind of revisit something that you want, like clearly want to do an oncologic resection if possible. Um, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, a lot of people are out there like, well, let's see if we can bridge this patient. Let's give them a bowel prep. We're dealing with unprepped bowel. How does, does that change things in your mind? Are you doing intraoperative colonic irrigations? Um, how, do you, how do you deal with that? Yeah, I typically don't use intraoperative colonic lavage. That's not something that, uh, I mean, you can do it. It tends to be very difficult, especially in the setting of, you know, of a, of a massively dilated bowel with liquid and solid stool, in some cases impacted. And, you know, I, one of the things we didn't talk about is fecal impaction and colonic impaction. You could have a stricola also in these places. So that's mm-hmm. a lot of stool in those patients. So I, again, if you do it, one of the easiest ways to do it is thinking about getting some anesthesia tubing and taking off of the appendix and doing an integrated lavage and kind of t- sewing in or tying in that, uh, that anesthesia tubing and running it off the end. You will see many, many textbooks, including textbooks that I have an opportunity to participate in, show you wonderful diagrams of that. But for those of you who have never done it, it's a heck of a lot harder to do in practice and make things neat and pretty than it is to do in reality. So just be aware of that. But that's probably the easiest way to do it is to come upstream, divide the bowel, put in that anesthesia tubing, tie it in, come back, integrate lavage, get it all the way through. But in general, that's not something that is necessarily needed. So you, you mentioned synchronous lesions and you mentioned, you know, doing a colonoscopy if you have the ability to. Is this something that you will routinely do with these patients on table, just looking distally, uh, taking a yeah. look? Yeah, oftentimes it's something that you're you're not able to do a scope on and you sh- you're going to take them back within the next couple of months in order to be able to clear the colon, understanding that there is that small chance, 10%, whatever you want to be able to call it, um, to be able to have a synchronous lesion. I think what's critically important in these cases is that you take the moment to palpate the colon if you can and feel if there's something that is massive that you're going to have to deal with that's an advanced lesion. Uh, you know, with a lot of stool and a lot of, especially form stool, or to do a a colonic lavage and get everything out to the point where you can get a scope and take care of subtle polyps. It's probably not the time or place. Okay. How about, let's, how do you deal with metastatic disease discovered at the time of, uh, of operation for uh, obstructing lesion? And let's you know, say they have a, a little lesion hanging off the left side of the liver. You know, what are you doing with that? Yeah, obviously it depends on the patient is doing hemodynamically. At a minimum, what you can do is you can, you know, biopsy that lesion and see what's going on because you may not know unless you got a CAT scan, if the patient necessarily has, if the patient necessarily has metastatic disease that you're not seeing elsewhere, like in the liver, and you're only looking at the gross surface, that should obviously show up on a CAT scan. Um, but I would tell you that, you know, if, especially left lateral lesion, hemodynamically stable patient to do a wedge resection on those patients, but ideally you want to biopsy and get tissue. Uh, but to do any extended, hey, I think this is an, a wonderful opportune time to do a trisegmentectomy or a significant, I'm going to call on my liver surgeon, it's probably not the time or the place. Right, right, excellent. Um, and let's let's talk about a very difficult patient population. But those are the ones, and you touched on this briefly. But those ones that are, you know, kind of uh, stuck to or adherent or even invading the duodenum, the pancreas. Um, uh, what what are you doing in that situation? Yeah, so I think it, that's important to take a look at. So the classic one there is the hepatic flexure lesions that are down in the head of the pancreas or in the duodenum. You really want to look at your CAT scan ahead of time because that's not what you want to be surprised for. Obviously, having a um, having a clue as to what's going on there is critically important. Uh, two different ways to approach these. The first one is, like we said before, is that this is locally advanced colon cancer. And there is some thought out there that the best thing you could do is divert these patients, even if it's uh, proximal with mucus fistula down deep, and then give them local neoadjuvant chemoradiation therapy and then come back and do a formal resection, especially if it's involving the head of the pancreas. Obviously, something that's touching the left lateral portion of D2 right there. 
you know, if you feel comfortable and within your skill set or you have the colleagues around that do to be able to get a good oncological resection and have an R0 resection um, and take that off and do a formal reconstruction uh, without causing too much narrowing or ischemia of that area, I think that's absolutely doable. But look at your CAT scans ahead of time. Make sure you're dealing with it because the last place you want to be is in the operating room and all of a sudden you find yourself, you're like, oh no, you're cocorizing the duodenum. You're in a situation you don't want to be with. That's when you say to yourself, is the best thing that I do right now is bail, divert, and get in the hands of somebody that I can. That might be the best option. Okay. And one last thing. So you, we, we, you touched on uh, rectal cancers and you know, we all know that we treat these differently, that you know, these patients get neoadjuvants. And uh, what, in your practice, um, how are you dealing with these? Would you prefer, let's say I'm a community surgeon out there. I don't deal with rectal cancer, but I'm, I'm going to be transferring this patient to you. Um, you know, uh, would you prefer I, how would you prefer I divert them? Or would you want me to put a stent up? What, 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 do you, what would you tell the community surgeon out there? Yeah. So uh, again, uh, the, the easy thing oftentimes is say, oh, I just put a stent in them, but low, especially low-lying rectal cancer lesion stents don't work very well. They're very um, problematic for the patient. They migrate, they don't stick. Sometimes they have problems associated with severe and raging tenesmus. So it's not a good place you want to be. A simple diversion in these patients is a good thing. Now, whether you divert with a ileostomy, a transverse colostomy, a loop sigmoid colostomy, I can guarantee you if you talk to a bunch of different people, they may give you a different answer. What I would tell you is that first and foremost, we go back to our competency of our ileocecal valve. If you're going to pull up a loop ileostomy and you got uh, a competent ileocecal valve, you haven't gotten yourself out of the problem. If you pull up a loop colostomy, there is a small chance that after that rectal cancer, remember, if I take that loop colostomy down and I want to eventually restore continuity, that all of a sudden now I'm getting that section of the bowel that I'm going to have to take out. You got to start thinking about length. A transverse colostomy is a very difficult colostomy to kind of deal with. Um, it tends to prolapse, especially the um, distal side. Um, so that's not ideal, although it's uh, in many cases, it's an easy enough thing to do because it's very redundant. It comes up easily. And if that's your way to get out of Dodge, that's fine. Um, I think that most people, I mean, what would I prefer if it's a competent ileocecal valve, if it's an incompetent ileocecal valve, an incompetent ileocecal valve, a loop ileostomy would be great that everything can decompress. And I've kind of still allowed myself as much uh, mobility as possible. But to be honest with you, Jay, having that opportunity to just get a stoma up, getting the patient, you know, out of that, uh, uh, out of that acute situation and still preserving the opportunity for me to do an oncological evaluation and hopefully eventually um, neoadjuvant chemo radiation therapy if it needed, and then a formal resection. Or, and, you know, in some cases, maybe we're going to get to the point now where they don't even need a resection at all with a response to uh, that. But that's a different talk for a different day. But <laughs> Um, a diversion for that would be critical and key. All right. Well, I think that wraps it up. I think we, uh, that's a good, like you said, that's, this is like the 10,000 foot view of, uh, you know, dealing, obviously there's a lot of nuance, a lot of things we could dive into, but for these clinical challenges, just we'll keep it straightforward and, and, and the stuff that's going to help you out tomorrow and it's applicable to your, your clinical practice. Very lucky to have, you know, one of the world's leading experts, Scott Russell Steele, walk us through this. So thanks Scott for the, your time. Um, thanks for listening behind the knife. Uh, we got a lot of new things coming up. We got a new website we're launching. We got tons of new content. So, you know, do us a favor, do all the things, subscribe to us, find us on YouTube, uh, give us a like, uh, and for the love of God, please leave us a, a review on iTunes. Uh, thank you all. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Until next time, dominate the day. 